0: Section twenty six of the Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy: The Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy: The Warren Commission Report. By the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter six: Investigation of Possible Conspiracy Part three At the Embassy Oswald declared that he wished to renounce his U.S. citizenship, but the consul to whom he spoke, Richard e Snyder, refused to accept his renunciation at that time, telling him that he would have to return to complete the necessary papers. However, Oswald did give the consul his passport, and a handwritten statement requesting that his American citizenship be revoked, and affirming his allegiance to the Soviet Union. The FBI has confirmed that this statement is in Oswald's handwriting, and Snyder has testified that the letter's phrases are consistent with the way Oswald talked and conducted himself. During the approximately 40-minute interview, Oswald also informed Snyder that he had been a radar operator in the Marine Corps, intimating that he might know something of special interest, and that he had informed a Soviet official that he would give the Soviets any information concerning the Marine Corps and radar operation which he possessed. Although Oswald never filed a formal renunciation, In a letter to the embassy dated November 3, 1959, he again requested that his American citizenship be revoked, and protested the refusal to accept his renunciation on October 31. While at the embassy, and in a subsequent interview with an American journalist, Oswald displayed familiarity with communist ideological arguments, which led those with whom he spoke to speculate that he may have received some instruction from Soviet authorities, Oswald's familiarity with the law regarding renunciation of citizenship, observed by both embassy officials, could also be construed as a sign of coaching by Soviet authorities. However, Oswald is known to have been an avid reader, and there is evidence that he had read communist literature without guidance while in the Marine Corps and before that time. After his arrival in Moscow, Oswald most probably had discussions with his Intourist Guide and others, but none of the Americans with whom he talked in Moscow felt that his conversations necessarily revealed any type of formal training. The historic diary indicates that Oswald did not tell his guide that he intended to visit the embassy because he feared that she would disapprove. Though Oswald gave Snyder the impression of an intelligent person who spoke in a manner and on a level which seemed to befit his apparent level of intelligence, correspondent Priscilla Johnson. Who spent about five hours talking with him, received a much less favorable impression. He liked to create the pretense, the impression, that he was attracted to abstract discussion and was capable of engaging in it and was drawn to it. But it was like pricking a balloon. I had the feeling that if you really did engage him on this ground, you very quickly would discover that he didn't have the capacity for a logical, sustained argument about an abstract point, on economics or on non economic political matters, or any matter philosophical. A comparison of the formal note Oswald handed Snyder and his letter of November third with the provisions of Section three forty nine a of the Immigration and Nationality Act suggests that Oswald had read the statute, but understood it imperfectly. He apparently was trying to use three out of the four ways set out in that statute to surrender his citizenship, but he succeeded in none. Moreover, persuasive evidence that Oswald's conduct was not carefully coached by Soviet agents is provided by some of his actions at the Embassy. The single statement which probably caused Oswald the most future trouble was his declaration that he had already volunteered to a Soviet official, that he would, if asked, tell the Soviet government all that he knew about his job in radar as a Marine. Certainly a statement of this type would prejudice any possibility of his being an effective pro-communist agent. Further, though unquestionably evincing anti-American sentiments, Oswald's behavior at the embassy, which brought him exceedingly close to expatriation, was unlikely to have increased his value in any capacity to the Soviet Union, Richard E. Snyder, the official who interviewed Oswald on October thirty-first, testified that he had every reason to believe that Oswald would have carried through a formal and therefore effective renunciation of his American citizenship immediately if he had let him. However, as a defector, Oswald could have had considerable propaganda value without expatriating himself, and if he had expatriated himself, his eventual return to the United States would have been much more difficult and perhaps impossible. If Snyder's assessment of Oswald's intentions is accurate, it thus tends to refute the suggestion that Oswald was being coached by the Soviets. In addition, reporters noticed Oswald's apparent ambivalence in regard to renouncing his citizenship. Stormily demanding that he be permitted to renounce, while failing to follow through by completing the necessary papers, behavior which might have detracted from his propaganda value. According to Oswald's historic diary and the documents furnished to the commission by the Soviet government, Oswald was not told that he had been accepted as a resident of the Soviet Union until about January 4, 1960, Although on November 13th and 16th Oswald informed Aileen Mosby and Priscilla Johnson that he had been granted permission to remain in the country indefinitely, the diary indicates that at that time he had been told only that he could remain until some solution is found with what to do with me. The diary is more consistent with the letter Oswald wrote to his brother Robert on December 17th saying that he was then, more than a month after he saw Johnson in Mosby, about to leave his hotel, and with some later correspondence with his mother. Oswald mailed a short note to his mother which she received in Texas on January 5th. That same day she mailed a money order to him in Moscow, but it apparently got there too late because she received it back, unopened, on February 25th. Oswald's conflicting statement to the correspondents also seems reconcilable with his very apparent desire to appear important to others. However, so long as Oswald continued to stay in a hotel in Moscow, the inference is that the Soviet authorities had not yet decided to accept him. This inference is supported by information supplied by the CIA on the handling of other defectors in the Soviet Union. Thus the evidence is strong that Oswald waited at least until November 16th when he saw Miss Johnson, and it is probable that he was required to wait until January 4th, a little over two and a half months from October 16th, before his application to remain in Russia was granted. In mid-November Miss Johnson asked Oswald whether the Russians were encouraging his defection, to which Oswald responded, The Russians are treating it like a legal formality, They don't encourage you, and they don't discourage you. And when the Soviet government finally acted, Oswald did not receive Soviet citizenship, as he had requested, but merely permission to reside in Russia on a year-to-year basis. Asked to comment upon the length of time, two months and twenty-two days, that probably passed before Oswald was granted the right to remain in the Soviet Union, The CIA has advised that when compared to five other defector cases, this procedure seems unexceptional. Similarly, the Department of State reports that its information indicated that a two-month waiting period is not unusual. The full response of the CIA is as follows. Oswald said that he asked for Soviet citizenship on 16 October 1959, According to his diary, he received word a month later that he could stay in the USSR pending disposition of his request, but it was another month and a half before he was given his stateless passport. When compared to five other defector cases, this procedure seems unexceptional. Two defectors from U.S. Army Intelligence units in West Germany appear to have been given citizenship immediately, but both of these had prior KGB connections and fled as a result of Army security checks. Of the other three cases, one was accepted after not more than five weeks and given a stateless passport apparently at about the same time. The second was immediately given permission to stay for a while, and his subsequent request for citizenship was granted three months later. The third was allowed to stay after he made his citizenship request, but almost two months passed before he was told that he had been accepted. Although the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs soon after told the U.S. Embassy that he was a Soviet citizen, he did not receive his document until five or six months after initial application. We know of only one case in which an American asked for Soviet citizenship, but did not take up residence in the USSR, In that instance, the American changed his mind and voluntarily returned to the United States less than three weeks after he had requested Soviet citizenship. The Department of State has commented as follows. The files of the Department of State reflect the fact that Oswald first applied for permission to remain in Russia permanently, or at least for a long period, when he arrived in Moscow, and that he obtained permission to remain within one or two months. A. Is the fact that he obtained permission to stay within this period of time unusual? Answer. Our information indicates that a two-month waiting period is not unusual. In the case of, name withheld, the Supreme Soviet decided within two months to give Soviet citizenship, and he was thereafter, of course, permitted to stay. B. Can you tell us what the normal procedures are under similar circumstances? Answer. It is impossible for us to state any normal procedures. The Soviet government never publicizes the proceedings in these cases or the reasons for its action. Furthermore, it is, of course, extremely unusual for an American citizen to defect. The information relating to Oswald's suicide attempt indicates that his application to remain in the Soviet Union was probably rejected about six days after his arrival in Moscow. Since the KGB is the Soviet agency responsible for the initial handling of all defectors, it seems likely that the original decision not to accept Oswald was made by the KGB. That Oswald was permitted to remain in Moscow after his release from the hospital suggests that another ministry of the Soviet government may have intervened on his behalf. This hypothesis is consistent with entries in the historic diary, commenting that the officials Oswald met after his hospital treatment were different from the ones he had dealt with before. The most plausible reason for any such intervention may well have been apprehension over the publicity that would follow the rejection of a devout convert to the Communist cause. Oswald's life in Minsk According to the historic diary and documents received from the Soviet government, Oswald resided in the city of Minsk from January 1960 until June 1962. Oswald's life in Minsk is the portion of his life concerning which the least is known. The primary sources of information are Oswald's own writings and the testimony of Marina Oswald. Other evidence, however, establishes beyond doubt that Oswald was in fact located in Minsk on at least two occasions. The Commission has obtained two photographs, which were taken by American tourists in Minsk in August 1961, in which Oswald appears. The tourists did not know Oswald, nor did they speak with him. They remembered only that several men gathered near their car. In addition, Oswald was noticed in Minsk by a student who was traveling with the University of Michigan band on a tour of Russia in the spring of 1961. Oswald corresponded with the American Embassy in Moscow from Minsk, and wrote letters from Minsk to his family in the United States. Oswald and his wife have many photographs taken of themselves which show Minsk backgrounds and persons who are identifiable as residents of Minsk. After he returned to the United States, Oswald conversed about the city with Russian-born American citizens who were familiar with it. Marina Oswald is also familiar with the city. The Commission has also been able to independently verify the existence in Minsk of many of the acquaintances of Oswald and his wife, whom they said they knew there. Once he was accepted as a resident alien in the Soviet Union, Oswald was given considerable benefits which ordinary Soviet citizens in his position in society did not have. The historic diary recites that after Oswald was informed that he could remain in the Soviet Union and was being sent to Minsk, he was given 5000 rubles, 500 dollars by the Red Cross for expenses. He used 2200 rubles to pay his hotel bill and another 150 rubles to purchase a train ticket. With the balance of slightly over 2500 rubles, Oswald felt according to his diary like a rich man. Oswald did not receive free living quarters, as the diary indicates the mayor of Minsk promised him, but about six weeks after his arrival he did receive an apartment, very pleasant by Soviet standards, for which he was required to pay only sixty rubles, six dollars, a month. Oswald considered the apartment almost rent-free. Oswald was given a job in the Belarusian radio and television factory, where his pay on a per-piece basis ranged from 700 to 900 rubles, 70 to 90 dollars a month. According to his wife, this rate of pay was average for people in his occupation, but good by Soviet standards generally. She explained that piecework rates throughout the Soviet Union have generally grown out of line with compensation for other jobs, The CIA has confirmed that this condition exists in many areas and occupations in the Soviet Union. In addition to his salary, Oswald regularly received 700 rubles, 70 dollars, per month from the Soviet Red Cross. The well-paying job, the monthly subsidy, and the almost rent-free apartment combined to give Oswald more money than he needed. The only complaint recorded in the historic diary is that there was no place to spend the money. The Commission has found no basis for associating Oswald's preferred income with Soviet undercover activity. Marina Oswald testified that foreign nationals are commonly given special treatment in the Soviet Union, and the Central Intelligence Agency has confirmed that it is standard practice in the Soviet Union for Americans and other foreign defectors from countries with high standards of living to be subsidized. Apparently, it is Soviet practice to attempt to make life sufficiently pleasant for a foreign defector, so that he will not become disillusioned and return to his native country. The Commission has also assumed that it is customary for Soviet intelligence agencies to keep defectors under surveillance during their residence in the Soviet Union, through periodic interviews of neighbors and associates of the defector. Oswald once mentioned that the Soviet police questioned his neighbors occasionally. Moreover, it is from Oswald's personal writings alone that the Commission has learned that he received supplementary funds from the Soviet Red Cross. In the notes he made during the return trip to the United States, Oswald recognized that the Red Cross subsidy had nothing to do with the well-known International Red Cross. He frankly stated that the money was paid to him for having denounced the United States, and that it had come from the MVD. Oswald's papers reveal that the Red Cross subsidy was terminated as soon as he wrote to the American Embassy in Moscow in February 1961, asking that he be permitted to return. Marina Oswald's testimony confirmed this. She said that when she knew Oswald, he was no longer receiving the monthly grant, but still retained some of the savings he had accumulated in the months when he had been receiving it. Since she met Oswald in March and married him in April of 1962, her testimony is consistent with his records. The nature of Oswald's employment while in Minsk has been examined by the Commission. The factory in which he worked was a large plant manufacturing electronic parts and radio and television sets. Marina Oswald has testified that he was an apprentice machinist, and ground small metal parts for radio receivers on a lathe. So far as can be determined, Oswald never straightforwardly described to anyone else in the United States exactly what his job was in the Soviet Union. Some of his acquaintances in Dallas and Fort Worth had the impression that he was disappointed at having been given a menial job, and not assigned to an institution of higher learning in the Soviet Union. Marina Oswald confirmed this, and also testified that her husband was not interested in his work, and was not regarded at the factory as a very good worker. The documents furnished to the commission by the Soviet government were consistent with her testimony on this point, since they included a report from Oswald's superior at the factory, which is critical of his performance on the job. Oswald's employment and his job performance are thus consistent with his known occupational habits in this country, and otherwise afford no ground for suspicion. Oswald's membership in a hunting club while he was in the Soviet Union has been a matter of special interest to the Commission. One Russian émigré testified that this was a suspicious circumstance, because no one in the Soviet Union is permitted to own a gun for pleasure, The Commission's investigation, however, has established that this is not so. The Central Intelligence Agency has advised the Commission that hunting societies, such as the one to which Oswald belonged, are very popular in the Soviet Union. They are frequently sponsored by factories for their employees, as was Oswald's. Moreover, Soviet citizens or foreigners residing in the Soviet Union are permitted to own shotguns, but not rifles without joining a society. All that is necessary is that the gun be registered at the local militia office immediately after it has been purchased. Experts from the Central Intelligence Agency have examined Oswald's club membership certificate and gun permit, and expressed the opinion that its terms and numbers are consistent with other information the CIA has about the Soviet Union. Marina Oswald testified that her husband went hunting only on one occasion during the time of their marriage. However, Oswald apparently joined the Bielorussian Society of Hunters and Fishermen in the summer of 1960, and did not marry until April 30, 1961, so he could have been more active while he was still a bachelor. Oswald made no secret of his membership in the hunting club. He mentioned it on occasion to friends after he returned to the United States, discussed it at some length in a speech at a Jesuit seminary in Mobile, Alabama in the summer of 1962, included it in his correspondence with his brother Robert, and kept his membership certificate and gun permit until the day he was killed. In view of these facts, it is unlikely that Oswald's membership in a hunting club was contrived to conceal some sort of secret training. Moreover, the CIA has informed the Commission that it is in possession of considerable information on the location of secret Soviet training institutions, and that it knows of no such institution in or near Minsk during the time Oswald was there. Oswald's marriage to Marina Prusakova on April thirtieth, 1962, is itself a fact meriting consideration. A foreigner living in Russia cannot marry without the permission of the Soviet government. It seems unlikely that the Soviet authorities would have permitted Oswald to marry and to take his wife with him to the United States, if they were contemplating using him alone as an agent. The fact that he had a Russian wife would be likely in their view to increase any surveillance under which he would be kept by American security agencies. It would make him even more conspicuous to his neighbors as an ex-Russian, and it would decrease his mobility. A wife's presence in the United States would also constitute a continuing risk of disclosure. On the other hand, Marina Oswald's lack of English training, and her complete ignorance of the United States and its customs, would scarcely recommend her to the Soviet authorities as one member of an agent team to be sent to the United States on a difficult and dangerous foreign enterprise. End of section twenty six. Recording by Maria Casper